Father, we thank you that you are here. Thank you that your spirit is moving in our midst. And Lord, that you bless us. You bless us so, Father. Just with your presence and who you are in nature. And this morning we come to commune with you, to bring hearts before you, to bring heart to heart, Father. And we thank you that you are, are here to receive that worship, In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, really enjoyed um, that worship. It's been a long time since she worshipped like that. And um, yeah, I must say, like if I'm just a share a little honest moment, felt like God is talking to me about really loving His presence um, enjoying His presence more than kingdom activities even, or getting things done in the kingdom, or any of the great things we strive towards, just loving His presence. Okay. Cool. Um, so I don't have a very long sermon this morning, but I'm really trusting God to do what He wants to do, but what we are aspiring to do this morning is, um, so uh, I preached a sermon a while ago in lockdown, and David then made it a series for me to finish, So, um, which I was excited for, I've grew a lot from that. Um, but today I suppose we, I want to round off those sermons that I've been preaching. Um, so, so where I started was, was if you guys remember, it was a sermon about our true estate, man's true estate apart from God. So who we are and what our status is before God, before we are saved, before we are in Christ. Where do we stand with God? And in the sea of worldviews that we swim in, there are lots of answers to that which are our lives. Um, lies that say that humans are basically good and we're basically awesome and we just need a little patching up here and a little patching up there. We saw from scripture how God very clearly drew the line about where we stand apart from Christ. And that before we are saved, we are his enemies um, because of sin. But that's not the end of the story. But it's important that we understand that part of the story. Um, and then we, we looked at, um, we moved on to, I uh, looked at, we spoke about God and His attributes. We looked at His incommunicable attributes, the ways that we will never be like Him. His omnipotence, His omniscience, everything, that He knows everything at all times. We will never be like that. And we've got these communicable attributes, which are the ways that we kind of tend to engage with Him um, and encounter Him and even become like Him as we grow in Christ. Faithfulness, kindness and mercy. And we looked at what was sometimes misconstrued as a conflict, that you would have a holy, just God and judge over sin, yet He would show mercy to sinners. And sometimes we would fall to one extreme and say, no, He's like this, or we'd say, no, He's like that, or we'd make our own assumptions about Him, but we saw in His Word that if, not for, if God really treated us as our sins deserved, we would not stand a chance. But His mercy is what leads us to, to, to reverence Him, to fear Him, to, to really come to Him. It's like that flame in a moth. It's that burning righteousness and holiness. But the knowledge that there's mercy with Him enables us to fear Him appropriately. 
and rightly and to relate to him rightly. And then we looked at, we, then we zoomed in on what we call the doctrine of Christ. So we looked at Jesus and really Jesus as our place of help. Jesus as our great high priest. As the one who, who stands between um, sinners for whom the wrath of God is due and the wrath of God. Jesus makes that intercession in between. And he, he's, he's our mediator between God. And we, we saw that God's heart is not absent in this. It is God's love that drove him to give his own son to be that for us. Um, so he is our place of help and he's our mediator that we actually have a relationship with the Father. It's not like God was very angry and now he's not angry or now he just doesn't care, you know, because, okay, fine, we've satisfied that. No, God had just wrath against sin, but in his love he brought Jesus forth to absorb that wrath on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to him and have life with him. Um, so, so today it's loosely called our response. So seeing all that, heard all, having heard all that, or even recognizing it, um, what what do we do after that? So what what's where does that leave us? And so, really, just the key scripture that I want to look at today is um, in Acts twenty, um, verses seventeen to twenty-one. So I'm just going to read it for us. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. So this is Paul. He's traveling to Jerusalem. But he stops over in Miletus. And it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You saw how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that last verse is where I really want to, to hang on to. Is, is If we look at the life of Paul and this whole time that he was in Asia, what was it that he preached in the public? And what was it that he preached in in private, what was it that he said to the Jews and to the Gentiles? Why Gentiles? What was Paul's message in all places, at all times, to all people? What was Paul about while he was there? And it's really about this of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. I think we should say that together twice. Just starting from repentance. Repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. One more time. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's life and his message and this is the gospel message. So there are really two things that I just want to focus on. Very simple things for us this morning. So this might end sooner than we think but um, repentance toward God. That sentence illuminates a whole lot um, to our understanding of repentance or whatever we might think repentance is or isn't. So firstly it says towards God. So that is, is um, for our understanding that the, the primary uh, the person first and foremost who is grieved by our sin who's, who 
who is uh, broken by our sin. If we look back at that first sermon, we looked at that scriptural scripture. Probably the guitars was not broken. Um, We looked at that scripture in Ezekiel where God is actually having a turn to say how he has been broken by the Israelites, by what the scripture plainly just calls their whoring after idols. And God himself said how I have been broken by that. So what the scripture does is repentance towards God. He's the one, first and foremost, before we get to how our sin affects other people and how it ruins our own lives, God is, is the one to whom... Um, repentance is due. But the other awesome word there is toward God. So, um, that's really the overarching theme of repentance is that it's towards God. That is the essence of repentance, is that it is towards God. And apart from that, all we really have is a, a fleshly, temporary attempt at turning away from bad deeds turning from this deed to that deed, um, which really doesn't, if, if that's all that repentance is, a behavior modification from a bad deed to a better deed, we tend to stay in the wilderness, we tend to stay, um, and with, with enough time we even become deceived and we become legalistic, we become like Pharisees, so, so, you know, do I have to repent from this, where does this fall, do I have to or not, and so, you can become legalistic and stuck in that world and start deceiving yourself if repentance is only about your behavior modification and it's not directed at God. Um, and <clears throat> so that repentance towards God is what Paul preached to the Jews and to the Gentiles. It's the same turning of heart that both required to the Jews who had a seemingly righteous exterior, um, some form of morals, some great behavior, some great deeds, they needed to repent towards God. Similarly for the Gentiles who were lawless, rebellious and lost, groping around in the dark, had to repent of their deeds, turn their hearts towards God. So repentance is really a turning of our hearts to God. Um, and without that repentance, we don't actually get towards God. If, 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 if it's just behavior modification, we don't get towards God. And so the scripture that I want to read next is um, Isaiah 59. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And your scripture is saying to us, and I want to emphasize that our sin is not a problem of a good or a bad performance. It is of a separation. And so the language of separation that we see here is that this, this, there's a togetherness that's meant to be there. There's a togetherness between God and His people that is meant to be, but, but it's not. It's separated. And so our sin is that separation. And so from there we can see God, I mean... When God speaks to us and he, and he grabs our attention by His Holy Spirit and He says, Hey, calls you by name and He says, This starts to show you, He says, This and this that you've been getting involved with, or this that you've been walking in, and, and, and this 
this way you've been going and he grabs our, our attention by his Holy Spirit, would he have us then say, sorry God, I repeated those things, walk away and try and do better while he just looks on. And unfortunately that is the picture that's created by a lot of religions and that is what inevitably happens when man makes a God. When man makes God in his own image. All that you have is God is watching. That's all you got. God is watching. So if you do something bad and you go to God, you say sorry, you go to God in inverted commas because you just uh, you always just get things off your chest. You go to the confession booth, you just clear the air, you know, because you feel guilty and then you walk away and then try and do better. But that is not the full picture. God, God does see. God's eyes roam to and fro. God is watching, but God is waiting. God is waiting for prodigal sons and daughters to return to Him. That is that, and, and the prodigal son and daughter, when they truly repent, they turn to Him. They turn their hearts to Him, not merely our deeds and all of these things. And so God would have us when we, when we are confronted with our sin and when we see what it is and, and even tremble at the weight of it. God would in that place have us wait. Not say sorry, run away and try to do better. He would have us wait there and then He would show us His Son and say, here is my Son. I'm very holy. You are very full of sin. And you're trembling right now because I am that holy. But here we go. I love you and here is my Son. He has that wall of separation He has dealt with. Trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. Um, and that's why Jesus says that He's the only way to the Father. There's no way through that wall, over that wall, or around it, or under it. That wall of separation between us and God. Jesus is the only one who has done what is necessary to deal with that wall. And that's some of the theme that we spoke of last week. Many false promises about how to get to God. But the, the thing between us and God is only one who has dealt with that. And that is Jesus. And that is what God wants us to place our faith in. So if we go back to that Acts scripture, it says, repentance towards God and our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to God and turn our hearts towards Him. But then what is our hope for? For righteous standing? What is our hope for? Sustained relationship with Him, given our sinfulness. What is our hope for? An eternal relationship with Him. He says, place faith in my son. He is the one. And sometimes it's helpful to think of this. I think of it. Um, but if you have to think of how much you'll have to trust Jesus on the final day. Let's call it the final day or the day of judgment. Like that moment where you stand before God. Any sort of senses of self-righteousness that you've propped yourself up with are gone. Any of those other things that you made uh, to feel better before God, those are gone. All our safety nets are gone. How much we will have to throw, literally throw ourselves upon the work of Christ to be made acceptable to God. And that is how much we must trust Him now. That is saving faith. When you throw yourself, in a sense, upon the work of Jesus. You entrust yourself to him, as Paul speaks in, in Timothy. He entrusts, you entrust all of that 
if there was any question about your eternal destiny or your where you stand with God, you trust that to the Son, not to yourself or to your own performance, but to the Son. And um, so I've actually ended up just getting a Matthew Henry commentary quote in each sermon. So I've got one here too, but uh, it just puts it nicely. It says, we must by repentance look towards God as our end. And by faith towards Christ as our way to God. Our repentance towards God is not sufficient. We must have a true faith in Christ as our Redeemer and Savior. For there is no coming to God as penitent, penitent prodigals to a father, but in the strength of Jesus Christ as mediator. So it's repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and maybe as a demonstration of that faith, what I want us to look at is, so if you've read through Romans at all, you, you'll notice that the main crux of Paul's argument about salvation by faith is Abraham. He says, how did Abraham become justified before God? It was his faith. So that, that's the whole point of Romans. Paul is talking to people who might trust in other things to become uh, righteous before God. He's saying, no. Abraham was made righteous before God before there was even the law. How did Abraham become righteous before God? It was his faith. So what is the nature of this faith? So faith can mean a lot of things in our mind. Maybe we think it's faith to faith for something to happen, or faith for a certain outcome, or faith for a house, or faith for this or that. But on a very basic level, I want to look at Abraham's faith, which is what Paul is talking about, and what it was about Abraham's response to God that made him righteous before God. What is the nature of this faith? So in Romans 4, it says there, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So I just want to pause there. So God uh, met Abraham, wherever Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldeans, and, uh, and God, in speaking with Abraham, eventually gave Abraham a promise. And he said, you know, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you offspring as many as the sand on the sand particles on the sea, as many as the stars in the sky. You're going to have that many children. At which point Abraham had no children. He was already 100 years old and Sarah was also very old and she hadn't been able to have a baby her whole life. So what does Abraham do there? Where do we see Abraham's faith? He says, okay, I believe you. That is the simplicity of Abraham's faith. God made a promise to him. God said, this is the way it's going to be. And this is how it's going to happen. Abraham says, sure. I believe you. And God is pleased by that faith. It says here, Abraham didn't have unbelief that allowed him to say, sure, God, surely not. Surely, you know, I'm a hundred, Sarah's this. And for us, it might be when we come to God, he says, I will save you by the work of my son. We might say, oh, I don't know, God. We've done this, I've done this, done that. 
a lot of things that maybe won't make it happen. I want to say today that we need to recognize unbelief for what it is. And unbelief is not a friend. It can doubt and doubt. Going through doubt, I'll say a little sidetrack here, is it can be a purifying experience. But nowhere are we called by scripture to stay in doubt, to stay in unbelief. Unbelief is is real and God doesn't God doesn't condemn us in his unbelief. But Jesus said, talks about the man who's justified before God. It's the man who says, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Jesus calls us out of unbelief. And so we see with Abraham, despite his various circumstances, that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Because he was fully convinced that God could do what he had said. Okay, next slide. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul is saying, in the same way that Abraham was made righteous before God with his faith, there is the faith that makes us righteous before God. And what has God promised that he will do? He has promised that my son has paid for your sin. And my son has made intercession for you. And Paul is saying, when we believe in him who says that, when we believe the promise of God and how God says things work and how they will be, and entrust ourselves to that, look at that, we also have righteousness counted towards us. Because of, in the same way that Abraham did, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. So, repentance toward God and our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last little thing that I want to talk about is, is when that has happened, when, when we've turned our hearts towards God and entrusted ourselves to Jesus and, and, and um, <clears throat> we are reconciled to God, what, what is the nature of that reconciliation? What next? What has happened. And the word that I just want us to remember today is covenant. Mm. It's not a word that we use a lot today, but the closest thing we have is marriage. Mm. So some of you are married. Some of you know the nature of that commitment. We see marriages. We see good marriages. And, and we that's, that's the closest thing we have to see that a covenant is a serious commitment. It is a serious transaction that takes place when, when two parties promise their lives to one another. And that is the beautiful thing, what God does when we believe in Him. So I want to go to Hebrews next. Where it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. <clears throat> it's a covenant that we step into, and God promises. Now that you've trusted my son, you've entrusted your righteousness and your eternal destiny to me and the son. We have a covenant now. 
This is the covenant. These are the terms of the covenant. That I, I, I change you. I put my words. I put my spirit in you. And no one has to come to you and say, "Yeah, I know the Father." He says, "No, you will know me personally. You will know me from the least to the greatest. You don't have to be a preacher to know God. You don't have to be a missionary." To know God, the least to the greatest, the smallest, the person with the tiniest mustard seed of faith can know God and grow in God. And the other term of that covenant is that I will remember their sins no more. So the final scripture on covenant that I want to share is what Jesus says. When Jesus is with his disciples, he says, if you guys didn't figure out what I'm here for, what I'm doing, what this is all about, yeah, I'm telling you now why I am here, what this is all about. And he says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, just given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross and his body was was to enact a new covenant. Without getting super technical in biblical history, there was the Mosaic covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. And the law was kind of the structure to that. And that didn't, the Israelites made a mess of that. Um, there are some other covenants elsewhere in Scripture, but, but here Jesus is talking about a new covenant. And the whole book of Hebrews is almost dedicated to talking about what the old covenant was like. And Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. And so that's all really just to communicate that, that when we place our faith in God and our trust in Jesus Christ, He makes a covenant with us. He makes a very serious commitment to us. And He remembers our sins no more. And we are in a very serious relationship with God after that. Um, so that's really all I want to share this morning and to, and to leave before you that you can meditate on and um, remember is is that scripture from Acts? Repentance towards God. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then once that has happened, there is a covenant. So, um, I think I'm going to ask Franz to, to talk a little bit. And um, really just allow enough time here at the end. We don't have to rush off anywhere. But the gospel is simple enough for us all to respond to it. Um, it's not a technical thing. It's not an academic thing. It is a relational thing. It is a turning of our hearts. And God is after hearts. So as we worship now, I want to just allow that space for you to speak with God. Maybe your heart has been hard towards Him. Maybe you've been very thrilled with activities that you do. But your heart has been hard towards Him. What's been far from Him. Maybe you never realized that, that, that we are in a covenant now. Maybe you've never even realized God's commitment to you. Maybe you thought God would be ready to throw you off. He'd be ready to get rid of you the moment you displeased Him. But He says, when you've placed your faith in my Son, we have a covenant. So as we, as we worship now, um, you're welcome to respond to God in whatever way His Spirit is prompting you. And if you'd like anyone to pray with you, you're welcome to come to the front. There'll be people here to pray with you, to pray for you. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never really trusted 
entrusted yourself to God in the way that Abraham entrusted himself to God. Um, and there's a perfect opportunity for you to do that with someone as well. So I want to encourage you and bless you. And I'll just pray for us.